welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us. Today's episode is about believing in something bigger than yourself and the supernatural abilities of those around us. Somewhat fitting following the Easter holiday, although I don't want to give anyone the impression that these stories will be about Christianity or religion per se, because that's just not true. First up, we have Theodore Carter's The Great Escape. Theodore is the author of The Life Story of a Chilean Sea Blob and Other Matters of Importance, published by Queen's Ferry Press in 2012, and a writer for Dirge Magazine, that's D-I-R-G-E Magazine. He's appeared in several magazines and anthologies, including The North American Review, Pank, Necessary Fiction, Acapella Zoo, The Potomac Review, and Gargoyle. You can find him online at www.theodorecarter.com. Here's his story, The Great Escape, read by his wife, Elizabeth. The Great Escape by Theodore Carter Candlelight flickered over the rusted handcuffs, leg irons, playing cards, jackknife, and fedora resting on the tabletop, and Eric despite the promise he'd made to himself earlier to remain unaffected, felt a tingling in his stomach. The medium, Madame Bovine, chanted something incomprehensible, slow, and convincing. Eric held Uncle Harold's left hand. His three bulky gemstone rings felt cool in Eric's sweating hand. Out of the corner of his eye, Eric watched Harold's head droop forward, his eyes closed. On his other side, Eric held hands with Dorothy Revnik, the world's sexiest escape artist of the late 80s, Uncle Harold's longtime friend, and the source of Eric's most enduring adolescent fantasies. Dorothy's thin, veiny fingers felt warm in his. He couldn't be sure, but he thought Dorothy's thumb moved ever so slightly back and forth across the base of his palm in a subtle caress. She wore a ring on each tan orange finger and she'd painted her perfectly shaped nails an impossible shade of still-wet red. Three other magicians, friends of Dorothy and Harold, sat at the table. Eric had met them all years earlier and pretended to remember their names. They wore severe-looking suits. One had an impressive handlebar mustache. The painted image of Harry Houdini peered down from the wall above Eric's head. The great escape artist was stooped over, his muscled, naked body bound by chains, his head tilted up and his eyes peered out over the room. Underneath his image, bold red letters spelled out, Houdini. Houdini's widow had started the seance in 1927 at her husband's request and continued it annually for ten years on Halloween, the anniversary of Houdini's death. After that, other magicians and family members took up the cause. Uncle Harold, whose relation to the magician could only be explained by a generous examination of the family tree, and who'd served time for something no one would explain to Eric, had opened the Houdini Museum and started his own seance 24 years ago. The tradition spanned Eric's entire life. Once, Eric had brought a news clipping from the Philadelphia Inquirer to fourth-grade show-and-tell. Even the name of the newspaper had sounded exotic to him compared to his parents' Washington Post. In the article, Harold expounded on the importance of the grand tradition. 
The accompanying picture showed Harold in a double-breasted suit, his chin upturned and proud. Eric still had the clipping in a shoebox in his closet. Madame Bovine, the hired spiritus, spoke clearly from her spot at the head of the table. Houdini, if you can hear us now, make yourself known. She wore several colorful scarves over her wide shoulders and filled her ample leather chair. She closed her eyes and tilted her head toward the ceiling. Flickering candlelight danced over cracked ceiling tiles. A week earlier, Eric had walked into the kitchen of his parents' house, and his mom, on the phone, exhaled and said, He just walked in. I'll put him on. She pushed the phone into her blouse, looked at Eric, and said, It's Uncle Harold. He wants you to participate in the annual idiocy. Eric smothered a smile, took the phone from his mother, and said, Hello? Eric, it's Uncle Harold, and I've got the opportunity of a lifetime for you. He explained that Great Uncle Maury's death had opened a spot for a new family participant, that blood lineage meant credibility, and that Eric was old enough to know his history, to feel the power of magic royalty that pumped in his veins. Eric tried not to sound too eager. Yeah, okay, he said. Eric didn't believe in spirits, but he believed Uncle Harold to be full of mystery. Also, he was home after losing his first post-college job and needed purpose. Time away in a hotel, even one in central Pennsylvania, didn't sound bad either. Fantastic, said Harold. I'm glad I called. I thought, hey, if he's old enough to give the girls at college the business, he's old enough for the grand tradition. The attempt at locker room camaraderie hit sour with Eric, mostly because he doubted Harold knew where he'd gone to college, that he'd finished last spring, or whether or not he was giving girls the business. After Eric hung up, his mom told him that while credibility through heredity makes for a better show, it also makes it harder for Harold's parole officer to deem the seance intentionally fraudulent, and that Harold was using Eric for his youth naivete, and clean criminal record. Don't give him any money. Don't sign anything. This made Eric want to go even more, made him want to truly feel his magical heredity. I don't have any money anyway, he said. He's a morally bankrupt grifter. If he becomes financially bankrupt, that'd be a bigger problem, right? Be safe, be smart, she said. Take my car. When Eric pulled out of the driveway in his mom's Toyota Camry, he felt as if he were moving towards something important, something he'd been on a path to do since childhood, something Uncle Harold knew he needed. Madame Bovine waited for what seemed like an inordinately long time before speaking again. Houdini, the great escape artist who amazed the world, escape again, Houdini. Escape the spirit world and meet us here. Thirty Houdini fans had paid fifty bucks each to sit in folding metal chairs and watch an event that had been free the year before. Eric couldn't make out the audience's faces in the dim candlelight, but he could see their feet. From the rounded ankles, slack cuffs, and dress shoes, Eric estimated them to be mostly over fifty, probably friends of Harold and Dorothy. Not a sustainable business model. Houdini, if you can hear me, 
Please make your presence known. Eric thought of the audience and wondered if he looked austere enough. Did the spectacle itself look real or contrived and sad? He felt everyone's eyes on him and suppressed an urge to bolt out of the room. Beads of sweat ran down his forehead and made him itch, but he couldn't wipe them off. Houdini, you escaped chains, straitjackets, and torturous devices of your own design. Escape the afterlife and come to us now. Silence. No one said a thing. Eric feared sitting there for eternity, sweating, watching Madame Bovine tilt her head toward the ceiling and sway back and forth gently, waiting in futility. Eric thought he felt Harold's grip tighten, though he could have imagined it, just as he may have imagined Dorothy's sensual caress. He sat still, afraid to move. He became lightheaded and worried he'd faint. A crash upset the stillness, and before Eric could turn toward it, something heavy smacked the back of his head and pushed his face into the white tablecloth. He heard the sound of shattered glass spilling over the floor. The audience gasped, then murmured. Eric reached up to the back of his head, felt wetness, put his hand in front of his face and saw blood. He looked down at the white tablecloth and saw flecks of red. He realized he'd let go of Dorothy and Uncle Harold, ruining the seance. Eric, you okay, dear? Dorothy asked. She placed her hands on his shoulders. He turned to look at her and noticed the thick layer of powder on her cheeks. He turned around. On the floor, he saw the heavy, wooden-framed Houdini poster, the glass pane shattered. Dorothy saw him looking at it. It fell off the wall. The glass broke when it hit the floor, and then it fell forward onto your head. Eric felt the heavy weight of Harold's meaty paw and bulky rings on his back. Harold stood and looked out at the audience. Folks, we've obviously made contact. The great escape artist has escaped again. We must now attend to this young man. Murmurs grew into loud voices as the audience shuffled away. Eric caught pieces of conversations. Is he okay? And do you really think? And staged and uncanny. We'll issue an official statement at a later date, Harold called out. Harold placed his hand beneath Eric's elbow and guided him to stand. Come with me, Eric. Harold led him past the large Houdini poster in its broken frame, glass shards littering the floor. Dorothy came from behind and took Eric's other arm. Together, Harold and Dorothy led him through a back door into an office space he assumed to be Harold's. In the corner, he noticed an open toolbox with a screwdriver lying next to it. Harold sat Eric down on a worn chaise lounge. Other seance participants filed into the room. Beyond them, famous magicians adorned the wall in a line of framed posters. Houdini, of course, but also David Copperfield, Chris Angel, and a younger Dorothy Revnick, with big blonde bangs, ghostly blue eyes, and a ball of luminescence emanating from her long, perfectly red fingernails. Eric's head pulsed. He listened to the voices around him. Uncle Harold cut through the mumbling and said to the group, We've got to think now. Madame Bovine said, How bad is it? 
Should we call an ambulance? An older man in a long-tailed suit, whose name Eric didn't remember, said, No, no, it's fine. No police. Which surprised Eric, because Madame Bovine had only mentioned an ambulance. The man with the handlebar mustache nodded in agreement. Eric closed his eyes. His head throbbed. The crowd's footsteps sounded loud on the wooden floorboards. When he opened his eyes, he saw the poster of Dorothy again. From his spot on the couch, it was the only thing to look at without moving his head. Dorothy's blonde hair swirled about her in a hairspray-infused voluminous mass backdropped by misty pink and blue laser beams. She wore a short tux blazer, buttoned low so that her breasts bulged out of the top. The jacket ended below her ribs, showing her toned midsection. A tight black skirt gave way to fishnet stockings. That's where the poster ended, and it left Eric wondering what kind of seductive footwear she'd had on. How did she complete an outfit like that in 1988? The real Dorothy behind Eric said, Are you okay, dear? She sat on the arm of the couch and leaned over him to put a cold cloth on his forehead, her breasts inches from his face. Her perfume spread like a blossoming cloud, and he looked down the front of her low-cut blouse. The unnatural orange color of her skin held true down to her black lace bra. He shifted his gaze to her eyes and in them saw the woman in the poster, the sexy escape artist of the 80s. Eric wondered if he could attribute this to blunt force trauma. She looked directly at him and curled her waxy lips on one side of her mouth. Eric thought maybe he'd been caught peeking down her shirt. Uncle Harold's face replaced Dorothy's in front of Eric. Are you doing okay? I think it's important that we discuss exactly what happened. Obviously, you felt something. Yeah, that picture frame smacking my head. Before that, you felt him, Houdini, his presence. Dorothy sat in an office chair a few feet away from Eric and leaned forward, eyes wide, the top of her cleavage showing at the neck of her blouse. Eric said, I don't know, which was soft-pedaling it. He'd felt Harold gripping his hand tighter and tighter. He might have felt Dorothy caressing his palm with her thumb. He did not feel Houdini coursing through his body. Harold exhaled and turned away. He got up, took a few steps away, and then turned back toward Eric and adjusted his black opal pinky ring. There's really no denying what happened. Everyone saw it. The thing to do is to come up with a statement. People are going to want to know what you experienced. All I remember is being in there with you guys and being kind of nervous, with all those people out there looking at me. There must be something special about you, though, Dorothy interrupted. The inflection of her voice moved up and down melodically, a sweet interjection to Harold's gruff tone. I mean, after years of his wife doing the seance, his family, his friends, and he found you. Her blue eyes shone bright from her cavernous, heavily painted eye sockets. Eric stared at her long, mascaraed eyelashes. I don't know, Eric said. Sure, sure, she said. I just know it. She walked over to him and put her hand on his chest. It made him want to sit up from his reclined position. 
but knew it would be too conspicuous a reaction to what was probably an innocent gesture. He'd sexualized her nurturing unfairly, a woman his mother's age. Uncle Harold, pacing the room, waved his hands dismissively. How about this? We say you're recovering from your injury. We'll issue a statement to the media tomorrow. There's media? asked Eric. You sleep on it and we'll come up with some quotes to put in the press release. I don't like the limelight, Harold. Isn't that your job? I mean, for the museum and everything? He said. You sleep on it, said Harold. You may change your mind. Eric shrugged. Dorothy smiled at him. Harold's friend in the long-tailed suit peered out the window at the street. Madame Bovine looked down at the floor. Eric lay on top of his garish bedspread in the Red Roof Inn and flipped through channels on the TV. He heard a knock on the door, opened it, and saw Uncle Harold. Eric, I'm sorry to bother you, but we've got some things to discuss. He pushed the door open, walked in, and sat at the small, heavily lacquered table near the window. Please sit, he said, motioning to the chair opposite him. Eric flipped off the TV, then squeezed past the bed and sat opposite Uncle Harold. Now, I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen. Okay. The thing to remember is that people want to believe the unbelievable. They need magic and magicians. That's part of what I do. It's part of what our family does, and it's where your first name comes from. Tomorrow, you're going to have a choice about whether you play into that or whether you make this seance, this museum, just some hokey roadside attraction. You have a chance to make magic, Eric, and I want you to remember how much people need that. It had never occurred to Eric that his name came from Houdini's real name, Eric Weiss, and he couldn't tell if Harold had made this up. Harold's eyes looked wide and sincere. He twisted the black opal pinky ring on his left hand. His thick gray eyebrows arched upward, and he smiled. Eric got the sense he'd heard the one true thing that Harold held on to, the one piece of morality he'd retained over the years. Also, I'd like you to sign this statement. It's short, but important. Harold took an envelope out of his inside jacket pocket and unfolded a paper with a short, typed statement confirming that Eric genuinely believed he'd made contact with the soul of Harry Houdini. Harold, I can't. It's simple. Just eases up some of my legal problems. Makes it hard to paint as a fraud. You know I had a run-in with the law a few years back. You can do that for me, right? Eric didn't speak. Harold slapped Eric's knee too hard, then stood up. We'll talk more tomorrow, okay? Harold moved toward the door, leaving the typed paper on the hotel room table. Harold looked down toward the ground, and Eric saw a tear forming in the corner of Harold's eye. Bye, Uncle Harold. See ya, kid, he said, and then left. Eric went back to the bed and flipped through the channels on the TV some more, but couldn't attend to any one show. What Harold said made some sense, but it didn't fit with what Eric wanted, why he'd come in the first place. 
He wanted to flee back to D.C. to get out of this whole situation and find a job, a real job, where he had to wear a nice shirt. An hour later, he heard a knock on the door. He figured it would be Uncle Harold again, or a hotel employee saying there's a problem with Harold's credit card. Eric went to the door and opened it a crack. Dorothy smiled at him through the narrow gap. She'd curled and expanded her hair into a display of grandiosity. Her floral perfume, which carried visceral undertones of mysterious scents, like wet leaves, mist, and a muddy creek bed, floated through the doorway. Can I come in? She stood waiting, biting her lower lip, and this made Eric consider the weight of her question, if she wasn't asking for more. Sure, he said and opened the door. She wore a short skirt and black stockings with a subtle, textured pattern. Fishnet? Fishnet meant sex, didn't it? Hadn't she stroked his hand with her thumb? She stopped and looked at the bed where Eric had laid his black suit out flat on the comforter. You should hang that up, she said. I will, he said. She took off her jacket to reveal a sleeveless red blouse, the top three buttons undone. She laid her jacket across the back of a chair. He thought again about the poster of Dorothy in the museum, her firm breasts highlighted by the neon backdrop. He did the math, and as best he could figure, Dorothy was between 50 or 55, at least 25 years his senior. This might be generous but he felt like being generous. The woman on that poster didn't exist anymore, but in his head, everything blurred together and time bent. In the Red Roof Inn in central Pennsylvania, reality didn't apply. He wanted the woman from the poster with the firm, sleek midsection and high cheekbones, the sexiest magician of the 80s. She fixed her blue eyes on him, and stepped forward as if she were on stage about to address an audience. Eric froze. Dorothy came closer and put her hand on his shoulder. Her red bra strap peeked out from the neckline of her blouse. I know you're special, she said. He smiled. His heart beat fast. You are, aren't you, she said. She tilted her head to the side as she asked it. He couldn't speak. She moved closer and put her hand on his chest over his t-shirt and looked at him with the same deep, mysterious eyes he'd seen on the poster. He felt the warmth of her breath on his lips. Her perfume swirled about like an extravagant cloud. Houdini chose you. After all these years, he chose you because you're special. There's something about you. Something coursing through you. Something powerful, don't you think? She moved her hands down to his waist and slowly gripped the sides of his torso. He put his hands on her hips as well, though sure she could tell he was uncertain, scared. She whispered in a breathy tone, and he bent closer to her mouth to hear it. What did it feel like? Tell me what it felt like. As she said it, the tips of her lips brushed his earlobe. Goosebumps shot up on his forearms. He should push her away, 
She was old, his mother's age, Uncle Harold's girlfriend he'd known since childhood. Hard to explain, and when he said it, he felt her move back slightly. But you felt it, right? You could tell he was there with us, right? Sure, he said. She came back closer, then rested her head on his chest. He smelled her citrus shampoo. I knew it, she said. You're special, Eric. Remember that. Tell them tomorrow. Okay, he said. She walked over to the table where Uncle Harold had left the statement and pen. She brought it to Eric. You need to sign this, she said, to let everyone know. He did. She exhaled, pulled him close, then took his hand and led him to the bed. She pushed him gently down onto his back. Then she straddled him, her skirt pulled tight across her parted legs and riding up so that he could see her thighs in her black fishnet stockings. She undid his belt. The metal buckle clacked in a loud, unmistakable sound, announcing exactly what was about to transpire. You're special, Eric. That's why I'm here. Don't forget that. Remember it tomorrow, when the cameras are on, the reporters. She tugged on the waist of his pants. He lifted his hips to help her. Okay, he said. She reached for him. When they ask you tomorrow, you tell them, right? She said. Okay, he said. Her blue eyes sparkled from their cavernous sockets. She kissed him with her waxy, painted lips. Eric closed his eyes and saw neon laser beams. Eric sat alone at the same table they'd used for the seance, only this time the well-lit audience consisted of two cameramen and three notepad-wielding reporters. Not so many reporters, Uncle Harold whispered in his ear, but one is from the AP, so the story could spread. Harold walked from Eric's side and joined the audience in a chair next to Dorothy. The Houdini portrait that had knocked Eric in the head sat on the floor behind him, shattered glass still strewn about. Specks of blood dotted the floor. He wondered if Harold had doctored the scene, flicked a paintbrush loaded with red over the floor. Uncle Harold stood up and turned to face the reporters. Let's get started, shall we? Thank you all for coming. For decades, our family has followed Harry Houdini's, Eric Weiss's, dying wish that we try to make contact with him in the afterlife. Last night, the famed magician reached out to his namesake, Eric Jefferson, in dramatic fashion. I will turn it over to Eric now. Uncle Harold motioned toward Eric with his ring-laden hand and sat down. Dorothy smiled at him, her blue eyes sparkling underneath prodigious eyelashes. She looked older than she had the night before. The lines at the corner of her mouth ran clear and deep. Eric read from the paper Uncle Harold had printed that morning. Last night, on the anniversary of Harry Houdini's death, being one of Houdini's few remaining direct descendants, I took part in the one and only official Houdini seance 
here at Harold's Houdini Museum. While others have been performing this ritual since the magician's death in 1927, this was my first time taking part. Not long after we started, I felt something unique and terrifying, something like a bolt of electricity shooting through my body. Eric looked up at this point to see if anyone would stop him and call bullshit. No one did. Dorothy's thick, glossy lips spread wide. Harold looked at him sternly and nodded. It felt like Harry Houdini had entered my body. It felt like nothing I've ever felt before. Eric paused, about to deliver the line he found most objectionable. It felt magical. Harold nodded in approval. Dorothy's red nails slithered up Harold's knee. She slid her fingers between Harold's. Eric saw a speck of red paint on the back of Harold's hand. For the first time, Eric noticed the black opal ring on Harold's pinky matched the ring on Dorothy's pointer finger. Dorothy rubbed her thumb slowly up and down Harold's thumb. Eric completed Harold's script. When the small pool of reporters called out questions, Uncle Harold jumped up and said, That's it for now, folks. We have copies of Eric's signed statement, and we're happy to pose for pictures. Dorothy and I can answer questions about Houdini and the museum. A camera-wielding reporter pulled on Eric's arm and guided him next to Dorothy and Harold. Harold put his arm on Eric's shoulder. Dorothy sidled in on the other side. She bent her knees and pointed her hips at the camera. Her orange-tanned cleavage pushed out of her blue sequin top. Once the reporters left, Harold and Dorothy walked him into the room with the chaise lounge and the poster of Dorothy. Eric exhaled. Dorothy turned and looked up at him with her large sunken eyes. Thanks, babe, she said and she stood on her tiptoes and kissed his cheek. He wiped his face with the back of his hand, removing a mass of red lipstick. Behind him, Harold cackled loudly, then slapped him on the back. If you want a job, Eric, you could hang around here, ride this out, make a nice go for a couple months. Yes, but after a while, you'd need a new gimmick, Dorothy said. That's true, said Harold. We could turn you into a kind of medium. You could do well with that. Only it would have to be your own thing. I've got conditions to abide by, according to the state. That why you needed my signature? Harold shrugged. What about all that stuff about feeling the power of magic royalty pumping in my veins? asked Eric. Well, that was me playing to your desire for grandeur. Still. You could make it true. Put it in the papers and on TV. The great Eric Jefferson. Eric looked around the dingy room. A thin layer of dust covered the picture frames on the wall. The museum smelled like an old closet. Or more aptly, he thought, like the inside of a coffin. Uncle Harold would likely die here. Maybe Dorothy, too. He pictured a queen-size bed in a back room with black satin sheets and playing card pillows, Dorothy's fishnet stockings on the floor next to Harold's wingtip shoes, matching rings on opposing nightstands. 
I gotta go home, said Eric. Stay a couple days, Eric, Dorothy pleaded. She sounded sincere, which surprised Eric. Yet he wondered if this was the continuation of an act, if this was still her toying with him for Harold's amusement. Despite everything, he almost wanted to stay. He was ankle-deep in thick mud and sinking fast. If he didn't pull his feet out now, he'd get stuck. And that had some appeal. I need to find a job, Eric said. Uncle Harold huffed, as if he'd said something funny. Dorothy and Harold walked Eric to his mom's Camry, which he'd parked behind the museum next to Harold's 88 Cadillac. You know, Eric said, I only came here as a favor to Mom. She said you needed help. Well, I did, and I thank you, said Harold. He bowed deep, as if concluding a performance. Dorothy seems to think you had some fun here, nonetheless. He winked. Eric hurried into the car. Before leaving, he took one last look at Harold's museum. He noticed chipped cement around the base of the foundation and a gutter rail hanging askew. See you next year, said Harold. I don't think so, he said. It's in your blood, said Harold. You can't escape family. It's tighter than a Houdini straitjacket. Then I will astound you, said Eric. This is the most astounding thing you've ever done, Eric. A great illusion. You think of that while you're wearing a tie stuck behind a desk. Harold and Dorothy turned around. Eric watched the sway of Harold's pinstripe suit, Dorothy's gait in her stiletto heels, and tight leather skirt. Harold put his thick hand on Dorothy's hip, his rings dazzling in the sunlight. They were the saddest and most incurably magical people Eric would ever know. Just a quick note before we begin our second story, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode where, for the first time in Secondhand Stories history, I've actually planned far enough in advance to know what stories we're going to feature in our next episode. I can't believe it either. If you're interested in hearing what these stories will be about, stick around and I'll tell you after the credits. Next up, we have White by Michael Anthony. Michael is a writer and artist living in New Jersey. He's published fiction, poetry, and illustrations in multiple literary journals and commercial magazines. Most recently, these include the Indiana Voice Journal, the Copperfield Review, Cowboy Jamboree, The Visitant, Ink in Thirds, Twisted Sister Lit Mag, and the Le Famille Review. Sorry if I mispronounced that last one. The American Labor Museum exhibited Michael's photojournalism essay on the waning of the textile industry in Patterson, New Jersey. Here's Michael reading his story, White. White. The first time it happened, George was walking down Broad Street with his mother. Shafts of yellow light cutting between office buildings across the park illuminated the Wednesday morning shopping crowd. Heading east, George's mother could only make out the dark silhouettes of people in front of her and the elongated shadows that trailed like devoted dogs. George broke from his mother and ran towards an elderly woman wearing a netted hat, a fur-collared blue coat, and who steadied herself with a cane. 
Less than a foot behind the woman, George jumped and shouted gleefully. The startled woman turned to find the boy grinning up at her. I'm so sorry, George's mother begged while regaining his hand. He didn't mean to scare you. He's only four. The woman gritted her teeth, then ambled towards Market Street. What's wrong with you, George's mother asked, her hand squeezing his to emphasize her displeasure. He simply stared at her, wondering why she didn't see it, too. They continued to Salzburger's department store for the regimental striped tie that would be a birthday present for his father, Tom Halberstam. Later, his mother told Tom about the incident. I don't know what came over him. He just ran up behind this woman and shouted, White, white. But she was black. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. Why did he say that, Tom wondered. I asked him on our way home, and he just repeated, She was white. She was white. So I dropped it. Like most children in this quiet suburban neighborhood, George would attend Brookside Elementary School. The next several years passed uneventfully until third grade, when Mrs. Halberstam received a call from George's teacher, saying there had been an issue with one of the girls in his class. Apparently, the teacher said, George kept chasing Marilyn Bledsoe around the playground yelling, White, White! She became upset and ran to the principal's office in tears. Unnerved, Lauren Halberstam apologized and committed to speak with her son. She waited until his father came home, and together they sat with George. "'What happened at school today?' Mr. Halberstam said. "'Marilyn cried,' George replied casually. "'Why?' Lauren asked. "'Because I saw white.' "'Where?' his father pressed. "'In her shadow.' "'What do you mean?' his mother said. "'Her shadow was white,' George responded. "'Stop,' Mr. Halberstam barked. Shadows are the absence of light. Then he held his hand between the lamp and the tabletop. See? George nodded. How could Marilyn's be white? his mother asked again. I don't know, George murmured, his eyes welling up. It's all right, Lauren whispered while cradling her son. We'll talk about this tomorrow. After putting George to bed, his parents retreated to their room. Probably just trying to get her attention, Tom sighed while folding his trousers over a hanger. Recalling the episode of years earlier, Lauren replied, I don't know. He said the same thing when he was three or four. He's imagining things, Tom said. Two days later, the telephone in the kitchen rang. Half expecting it to again be George's teacher, Lauren steeled herself. But when neighbor Bernice Cahill relayed the news, Lauren fell against the wall. Her knees wobbled, her throat clenched off a flood of bile. How was all she could mumble. Oh, my God, that's awful. I can't begin to imagine. Poor Dolores. Their conversation lasted only minutes. When Lauren hung up, she sank into a chair, head in hands, sobbing. At dinner that evening, George told his parents his classmate Marilyn was out sick, and the teacher asked everyone to pray for her over the weekend. Obviously, the children hadn't yet learned the full story. Perhaps they would by Monday. The following week was somber, ending with a memorial service for Marilyn Bledsoe, who had chased the ball into the street and the path of a passing truck. George seemed quiet, but not upset. Thankfully, third graders didn't yet comprehend the devastating shock of a child's death. For most, it was something only grandparents or goldfish did. Over the next eight years, 
George did see the white on occasion, but usually only for a few fleeting seconds in large crowds. He paid little attention and certainly didn't say anything. In his junior year at Woodrow Wilson High, he accompanied his parents to a family reunion in the Westville home of Lauren's Aunt Ruth. Nearly everyone there was a relative, many of whom Lauren hadn't seen in years. As the barbecue dragged on and indigo shadows painted the deep backyard, George found himself talking with the daughter of his great-aunt's neighbor, in whom he quickly developed an interest. A tall brunette with arresting blue eyes, she had a devilish grin and raucous laugh. They passed time fabricating life stories about people unknown to them there. The wilder their story, the louder they laughed. Eventually, Charlotte, as he discovered her name, suggested they take a walk. When they neared the end of the block, Charlotte handed George a joint which they shared. It was George's first, and it hit him hard. Charlotte guided the unsteady George up the street. Halfway back and in the shade of a large elm, she spun and kissed him. It was the first time another tongue had touched his. Her hands roamed his back, then his front. Between the buzz and Charlotte's amorous attention, his body reacted. Charlotte noticed. Stoned, George remained close to Charlotte. His eyes followed Aunt Ruth as she shuffled past on her walker. He mumbled, She's white. Believing the marijuana had really affected him, Charlotte turned and laughed. What? Nothing, George said, and forgot about it. So did Charlotte. Starting that evening, the teenagers exchanged telephone calls, some lasting an hour or more. Charlotte introduced George to a whole new aspect of adolescent life, and it was exciting. When Lauren Halberstam knocked on the door to George's bedroom several days later, he quickly hid the men's magazine he had borrowed from a friend at school. Yeah, he said. George, my cousin Helene just called. Aunt Ruth passed away this morning. I'm going to take a ride down there tomorrow. Charlotte going to be there, he asked. I don't know why, Lauren said. Just curious. As Lauren closed the door behind her, George was on the phone with Charlotte asking the same question. She said probably. The following day, George rode downstate with his mother. While Lauren helped her cousins make arrangements, George and Charlotte slipped out and walked the half-mile to her home. With her mother also at Aunt Ruth's house, they were alone. They smoked weed, drank vodka, and went to her bedroom where, among other things, they took Polaroids. Before that afternoon ended, George and Charlotte learned much about each other and shared several other firsts which they would carry into adulthood, though never revealed to their parents. On the ride home, Lauren thanked George for accompanying her. He smiled, more so at the enticing photo of Charlotte hidden in the pages of his school book than his mother's gratitude. As they approached the interstate exit, George mentioned he had seen that white at the family gathering. Startled by his admission, Lauren nearly rear-ended the car ahead of them. What? she yelled. Yeah, at the barbecue, when Aunt Ruth was going for some cake, I think. She had that white shadow. Why didn't you say something, Lauren asked sharply. I don't know, he groaned. Lauren told Tom about George's comment as they lay in bed that night. He dismissed it, but Lauren couldn't. She confronted George in the morning, asking if that was the only time it had happened since he was younger. He told her no. 
Didn't you think it was odd? she asked. Yeah, but I knew if I said anything, you'd think I'm crazy. You're not crazy. Maybe you just have some sort of gift. I don't want to talk about it, George grunted, then stomped out of the room. Weeks passed before Lauren broached the subject again. George, about the white thing, who else have you seen it with besides Aunt Ruth? George recalled several instances of which he only knew one person, and yes, he said, she had died. You see the connection, right? Yeah, George said, but it's not something I can control. I just see it, that's all. Yes, then that person dies, his mother said. What am I supposed to do, George snapped, clearly bothered by a power he neither sought nor wanted. I think you should talk to someone about it. You mean a shrink, George shouted. He did not seek professional help. Instead, George finished high school and went away to college, majoring in film studies. One Christmas break, he noticed his father walk through the kitchen as he had done countless times before. But, this evening, something was different. George swallowed hard, then asked how his father felt. Fit as a fiddle, Tom grinned before bounding up the steps to the second floor. Suddenly, what had been a mere inexplicable oddity was now a threat. Shaken, George climbed the stairs and knocked on his parents' bedroom door, asking if he could speak with Tom privately for a few minutes. He agreed, and they moved down the hall to George's room. Dad, how's it going at work? The answer was as expected. He asked about the last time his father had a physical. Did he still exercise? Was he thinking about vacation? The litany of questions continued until Tom said, Why all the sudden concern? I just remember how we used to sit on the front porch and talk about stuff. We haven't done that lately. Between you being away at school and with Charlotte when you're home, I didn't think you were interested anymore. I'm sorry, George said. Don't be. You're at the beginning of your life, exploring as you should. But if you ever need anything, just know your mom and I are here for you. Thanks, Dad. Think we could hang out tomorrow, maybe go ice skating at Municipal Rink like we used to? That would be great, but I have this major project budget to finalize before the end of the year, or the client loses the funding. What about Saturday? Still anxious, George tried again. I really want to go tomorrow. Me too, but it will have to be Saturday. You understand, right? George wanted to scream no, but didn't. George awoke at six Friday morning and listened for his father. As soon as he heard the shower running, he went downstairs and started the coffee, scrambled several eggs, and arranged three place settings. What's this? Tom asked when he came down. I felt like doing it, George smiled. Lauren entered the kitchen to find her husband and son sharing the big breakfast. Mom, sit. I have some for you, too. George plated the eggs and poured her coffee. Those minutes together were idyllic. After Tom Halberstam left for work, George told his mother he decided to delay his return to school by several days, saying he had some loose ends to tie up before heading back. George went for a run where he struggled with the ominous premonition. Could he prevent it? Should he tell his mother? Would she break down? The farther he ran, the more vexing the questions became and the cloudier the answers. George finally stopped at the high school athletic field bending deep in pain 
With hands on knees and gasping for air, he sank to the ground crying where he lay on the grass, watching clouds scud by. Back home, he called Charlotte but got a busy signal. With his mother volunteering at the Hills Convalescent Home, George had the house to himself. While showering, he thought about the times he had seen white and recalled the day in junior high when he asked his friends if they saw it too. Their howling derision ended his inquiry. Once downstairs, George listened to the message his father had left on the answering machine. It said he was behind schedule and likely would not be home for dinner. No matter how he tried, George could not stop conjuring horrible scenarios. A heart attack at the office. An accident on the way home. He called Charlotte again, this time reaching her in a new apartment across the valley. Please, I need to see you. No, I'm fine, really. I'll be there in about a half hour. Charlotte kept George's mind off the heavy curtain that seemed just steps behind him. He hadn't told her about the white and wasn't about to now. Charlotte was happy to learn of his change in plans for school. She kissed him deeply and eased him into an hour of distraction, albeit without clothes. Once dressed, George told Charlotte he would see her the following day. George arrived home to find his mother's car already parked in the driveway. Unsurprisingly, his father's was not. A familiar aroma that harkened back to his childhood greeted George inside. Lauren was baking Tom's favorite, apple crumb pie. Had he somehow given her an indication that morning? Her enthusiastic embrace did little to assuage George's concern. You know, Dad left a message saying he was going to be late, George told his mother. I listened, Laura replied. Wanted to make a pie for my boys. George tried to ignore the growing lump in his throat. The remaining balance of the day passed with the torpidity of a glacier. Finally, a car door slammed at three minutes to nine. Thirty seconds later, the front door creaked open. I'm home, echoed up the hallway. An invisible gust dispersed the impenetrable cloud of doom that had engulfed the Halberstam house. Father, mother, and son sat at the kitchen table enjoying warm apple pie between mouthfuls of steaming coffee. Laughter filled the room as remembrances of silly incidents flowed from one to another. So, his father said during a momentary pause, what's this I hear you're postponing going back to school? I've got some things to take care of. I have the time. Son, Tom smiled, none of us knows how much time we have. Don't waste a minute. Get on that plane. We'll talk about it tomorrow, okay? George deflected. I'm bushed, Tom sighed. I'm going to shower and watch some TV in bed. Lauren? Mrs. Halberstam stacked the cups and plates in the dishwasher and then kissed George on the top of his head. See you in the morning. Husband and wife coiled their arms around each other and navigated the stairs in that precise syncopation they had developed over their decades together. Halfway up the staircase, Tom called down. Don't forget, skating tomorrow. Relieved the white was wrong this time, George responded, Love you guys. Sleep was welcome and deep for George, but as that pre-dawn soft gray replaced the night sky, a scream pierced the closed door to his bedroom. Instead of flying back to school, he guided his mother down the aisle of St. John Presbyterian Church, trailing the steel casket being wheeled towards the sanctuary. 
and then steadied her as it was lowered into a plot at the Union Hill Cemetery. It was several weeks before Lauren gathered the strength to ask if George had seen the white near his father. Not wanting to cause his mother any more grief, George lied. He skipped the entire next semester. Charlotte and George married five months after he graduated Oberlin. They moved some 40 miles east of his boyhood home and where Lauren Halberstam still lived. Three years after that, they drove over to tell Lauren the good news in person. She was thrilled at the prospect of becoming a grandmother. George was equally excited hearing about the man Lauren was now dating. As the months to Charlotte's due date passed, George thought about the white again. It had been a while since he had seen it, except, of course, in large crowds like at the county fair, where it often was behind one of the carnies or sometimes trailing a teenager who likely would be found slumped in a car overdosed on heroin. When that white did appear, George's mood would darken, prompting Charlotte to ask, What's wrong? He answered the same way every time. Nothing, just a little down. Charlotte suggested he see a doctor about his mood swings. He didn't. Sometimes at night, George stood over his sleeping baby Eloise, praying silently he would never see the white near her. Thankfully, he didn't. Nor did he see it when Marty was born. But his fear grew alongside his son and daughter. One November evening, George left work late. While crossing the street, he heard the screech of skidding tires and a violent explosion of metal on metal. He saw two headlights careening directly at him from the dark. In the moment before impact, George spun, frantically searching the pavement for his shadow. Thanks, Elizabeth, Theodore, and Michael for sharing these stories. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart. And thanks to you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. If you like the show, which you must if you're still listening, we'd really appreciate it if you spread the word about us. You can do this by just telling a friend or family member about the show, writing us a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or posting about us on your social media feeds. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more secondhand stories. Mother's Day is coming up, people, and we're making sure you're prepared by running two stories about moms and their relationships with their sons next time on Secondhand Stories. We'll also be starting that episode a little differently, and I'm pretty excited about it, so be sure to tune in. Thanks.